0: The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lBCliberty.org. Good morning. Will you turn in your Bibles, please, to Esther, Chapter 8. Esther chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 10. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, you can find the book of Psalms, which should be roughly right in the center of your Bible, and work backwards to Job, and then you'll come to Esther. In your uh, pew Bible, or your chair Bible, it's page 437, Esther 8 through 10, it was Pastor Jacob who recommended we bunch up these chapters all together in one sermon, and like a sap, I agreed to that, I voted, and I was like, let's do it! I had no idea I'd be preaching the 8 through 10 sermon, but... Here we are. Esther 8 through 10, beginning chapter 8, verse 1. That same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Then Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet, wept, and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter toward Esther, so she got up and stood before the king. She said, "'If it pleases the king, and I have found favor with him, if the matter seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written.'" Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, look, I have given Haman's estate to Esther and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews and seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. On the 23rd day of the third month, that is the month Sivan, the royal scribes were summoned. Everything was written exactly as Mordecai commanded for the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the 127 provinces from India to Kush. The edict was written for each province in its own script, for each ethnic group in its own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in King Ahasuerus' name and sealed the edicts with the royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, bred in the royal stables. The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month the month Adar. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the people so the Jews could be ready to avenge themselves against their enemies on that day. The couriers rode out in haste on the royal horses at the king's urgent command. The law was also issued in the fortress of Susa. Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal blue and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. And the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. In every province and every city where the king's command and edict reached, gladness and joy took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday, and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. Chapter 9, verse 1, The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. On the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace, and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including Parshadanatha, Dauphin, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmasta, Arassi, Aradai, and Valazatha. They killed these 10 sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. However, they did not seize any plunder. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, In the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's 10 sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be done. Esther answered, If it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law. And may the bodies of Haman's 10 sons be hung on the gallows. The king gave the orders for this to be done, so a law was announced in Susa, and they hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and the 14th days of the month. They rested on the 15th day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. This explains why the rural Jews live in villages, observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews in all of King Ahasuerus's provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year because during those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing, and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun, as Mordecai had written them to do. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the purr, that is the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head, and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word Pur, because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed, to, had witnessed and what had happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city, so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life, and their memory will not fade from their descendants. Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote this second letter with full authority to confirm the letter about Purim. He sent letters with assurances of peace and security to all the Jews who were in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in order to confirm these days of Purim at their proper time, just as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had established them, and just as they had committed themselves and their descendants to the practices of fasting and lamentation. So Esther's command confirmed these customs of Purim, which were then written into the record. Chapter 10, verse 1. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax throughout the land, even to the farthest shores. All of his powerful and magnificent accomplishments and the detailed account of Mordecai's great rank with which the king had honored him, had they not been written in the book of the historical events of the kings of Medea and Persia, Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. He was famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. He continued to pursue prosperity for his people and to speak for the well-being of all his descendants. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, will you please bless the preaching of your word. Help us to see the glory of Christ Jesus, even in this text. We pray these things in his name, the name of Jesus. Amen. The book of Esther has a very peculiar story in it, right? So scholars have debated what the genre of Esther actually is. Is it pure history? Is it a moral tale? Some argue that it should be considered a comedy, actually. And I think it's all of the above. It it is true history. It's a true history that contains great principles for righteous living and for courageous hope. And it has some very ironic moments. It has the elements of comedy in it. There are some pretty funny scenes in this story. It's also complex because it appears to have several endings, right? One would think the real climax of the story is when the conniving Haman is hanged from his own gallows, the one that he set up for the public execution of Mordecai. But then there's more to the story thereafter. So instead of a short coda, or um, in literary terms we call it the denouement, if you like you know French words, the denouement, instead of that we get three more chapters of action, or at least two and a half, I suppose, right? It's kind of like um, the, the return of the king in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, right? You think it's about to end, and then there's like 24 endings left. If you're watching the movie, you come to Sam and Frodo. Like, they've spent two and a half movies trying to get this ring to Mount Doom, and they finally throw the ring into the fires of Mount Doom and destroy it, fade to black, the end, right? Wrong! There's 45 minutes left in this movie. You have the big reunion scene where the hobbits are like tickling each other on the bunk beds or something. I don't know what's happening. And you think, okay, you had to have a moment of happiness to end the movie. So now it's over. Wrong. You have the coronation of Aragorn as the true king of Gondor, right? It's a pretty climactic moment. It's like the end of Star Wars, you know. It's the royal procession. Finally, he's uh, you know, received his rightful place. Now the movie can be over. Wrong. <laughs> Sam and Rosie have to get married, right? You can't leave that thread untied. So now it's over. You end on a high note. Wrong. You have the elves, they have to sail off to the Grey Havens, and Frodo is going with them. And they sail off into the sunset. That should be the ending, but it's not the ending. There's another ending. We go back to Sam in the Shire, coming home to his family, and that's the real end. Now, in the book, there's like 23 more endings, right? Peter Jackson kind of narrowed it down for us and gave us just like 17 instead. The book of Esther is like this. You just keep thinking, And this is where they should put the end. Haman's killed, ding-dong, the witch is dead, but Dorothy still has to get back to Kansas, right? So there's this pesky matter of the Jews being marked for genocide, right? we got to tie that loose end up. So there's more story to tell. And what's great about it is rather than simply extending out a story that should have been over, it's actually an opportunity for the divine author of the Scriptures the divine author of history itself, to lay it on thick about how generous he is with the grace of redemption. The book is full of what I'm calling this morning redemptive reversals, the reversals of redemption. Redemptive reversals are the moments when, to borrow from Tolkien again, this is the last Tolkien quote, I think, everything sad comes untrue, right? The sad things become untrue. The low is made high, the dark is made light. Everything looks like it's falling apart, but chapter 9, verse 1, just the opposite happened. God's redemptive purposes reverse the circumstances of his people from bleak to joyful. Here's just a short list of redemptive reversals in the story. Queen Esther goes from hiding her identity to walking in the light. Haman goes from swaggering around to hoist it on his own petard, right? Hester goes from waiting in the harem for the king's invitation to hanging around his presence constantly and from wondering about her place in his favor to being awarded Haman's estate. Mordecai goes from crying in the king's courtyard to entering the king's court. He goes from sackcloth and ashes to royal robes. He goes from suffering Haman's persecution to wearing Haman's ring. And there are many others besides. It's, it's, like a, it's a series of cascading conclusions then in chapters 8 through 10. And they show us the complete reversal that God will ordain for his afflicted and persecuted people. And these illustrate then for us the reversals in our own lives and destinies wrought by the redeeming purposes of God in Christ. So I just want to highlight three of these reversals of redemption this morning. And we'll start with this one. Redemption turns sorrow into joy. Redemption turns sorrow into joy. We have seven chapters of Esther, Mordecai, and all of God's people in very precarious circumstances. Esther lives in fear of the king that she's married to. Mordecai lives in grief and mournful protest, and there's a plot against his life. The Jews live in the vulnerability of victimhood from Haman's plot to have them all killed. If you've got seven chapters elaborating all of that, it makes sense that you need more than one chapter to show the epic reversal that takes place. If everything were left to the machinations of the human characters in the story, we might be left to an open-ended bleakness. But the most important character, of course, is the one behind the scenes, God himself. And he is steering these people and he's steering these events toward a reversal of joy. Look in chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews and all of King Ahasuerus's provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year. Because during those days, the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. They gained relief from their enemies. Their sorrow, verse 22, was turned into rejoicing. This turn of events marks the inauguration of the Feast of Purim. The name itself, Purim, actually enshrines the ironic reversal of fortunes here. Purim, from the word pur, which refers to the lots cast, like, like uh th- Rolling dice, it's a game of chance. We're going to see how things turn out when we cast these lots. Verses 24 through 26 of chapter 9. Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the Pur, that is the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head, and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word purr. So Haman cast dots. I'm uh, oh, sorry, cast lots. Maybe there were dots on the dice to determine what days the Jews should be destroyed. Now there's been a reversal, and the Jews kind of stick it to their enemies forever by naming their joyous festival celebrating this redemptive reversal after the very means of their intended destruction. Oh, you're gonna cast lots for our destruction? We're gonna have a party and we're gonna call it lots. That's what we're gonna do. And faithful Jews still celebrate Purim today. They take something meant for evil, and they turn it into something good. That name, Purim, is indicative itself of a redemptive reversal. What is this like for us? What would be sort of a parallel illustration for followers of Jesus? I think it's a little bit like Christians wearing crosses around their necks. Or hanging crosses up in their homes or in their churches. The cross is a scandalous thing, a a profane thing in the first century world. You wouldn't even mention the cross in polite company. It's a place of grotesque execution. And yet we wear it on t-shirts and we stick it on our car. Why do we do that? Because the place of Christ's execution is the ultimate place of redemptive reversal. It's the place where the man of sorrows purchased our eternal joy. Have you ever been in a place so low that you could not see yourself out of it? Maybe you've been in a situation so dark, so seemingly hopeless, you couldn't even fathom a horizon where change was possible. You hope for a reversal, but you couldn't imagine that it could happen to you. It happens to some people, not to me. And the pain and the grief and the heartache is so heavy the idea of, of smiling, of laughing, of feeling light and, and free like you once did just almost seems like a cruel joke. Never been there? We have two daughters, Macy and Grace, but we lost a child between them. And I remember vividly the, the grief of losing that child. It, it was overwhelming. I know many of you have been there, maybe if not with a child, with just another loved one. But losing a child is is almost an inscrutable pain. A life ended before it really has a chance to grow up and and show who sh- he or she was. I remember curling up in the bed and not knowing how to get out. It it hurt too bad. I could not see the end of the pain. We lost our child on the 4th of July in 2002. And for a while it felt like the world had ended. But not too long after, of course, Becky was pregnant again. And it was a difficult pregnancy with lots of complications for the baby. Lots of complications for Becky. And we were nervous and we were fearful. And our baby's due date was July 4th, 2003. A red letter date for us that represented a lot of pain. But the Lord knows how to redeem the time in ways that we do not. And on July 5th, One day late, but just on time, our grace was born, and our sorrow turned to joy. Now, the birth of grace, of course, doesn't make up for the loss of a previous child. It doesn't mean that that loss doesn't hurt and still doesn't hurt today. But grace was and is still a reminder to us that God knows how to bring us from the depths of pain to the heights of rejoicing. Grace's birth didn't change the death of our child, but it was a sweet way for the Lord to show us that He could redeem it. He could redeem the time. Now, of course, we don't always have guarantees that every situation this side of heaven will work out these ways. Some pains may last us until the Lord returns. We're not prosperity gospelists. We know that in this world we will have trouble. We're not prosperity gospelists, but we are gospelists. We can take heart because Christ has overcome the world. The story of Esther is proof that God is in the business throughout history of turning sorrow into joy. But the story of Esther is just a foretaste of that day when Christ will return. And the Bible says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And pain and sadness will be no more. Even death will be no more. In John chapter 16, verses 20 through 22, Jesus says to his disciples and to us, you will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will will turn to joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I'll see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. If you're in a time of sorrow, look up. Trust in the redemption of Christ Jesus. In the words of Isaiah 51, verse 11, The redeemed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. Redemption turns sorrow into joy. Secondly, redemption turns objects of wrath into objects of mercy. Redemption turns objects of wrath into objects of mercy. Haman may be defeated, but the Jews are still marked for annihilation. The schemes of Haman live on after him. But there is yet another redemptive reversal to take place. God's people will turn from objects of wrath to objects of mercy. Look in chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. Mordecai wrote in King Ahasuerus' name and sealed the edicts with the royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, bred in the royal stables. The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and, um, every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. Mordecai has essentially orchestrated a total reversal of the Jews' position as potential victims into potential victors. And I'll say a little bit more about that later. But what he's done to reverse their situation is is basically to initiate a kind of holy war here. Now in verse 11, the permission to annihilate even the women and children of those who are hostile to them is an ethical challenge for sure. I sort of hung on that for a little while. stewed on that part, here's what I've come up with. The first thing I would note is that this detail is not a direct command from God, but rather the devising of the man Mordecai. We don't have to approve everything we see a man permitting in the Bible. Not everything descriptive, in other words, is prescriptive. Now, of course, there are other places in in the Scriptures where God does command the annihilation of entire families of Israel's enemies. What I'm trying to note here is that the challenge of those texts is not necessarily a particular challenge in this text. And the main takeaway that we should see in this open season for the Jews' self-defense is the totality of the reversal. That's really the emphasis here. All of the Jews, women and children included, were marked for death. Haman was intent on genocide. And now those marked for death have full permission to turn the entirety of the table on their would-be assassins. You would kill my family? Then I may kill yours. And what we are really left to take away from this turn of events, concerns about the details aside, is that where Haman's plan was for the destruction of God's people, Mordecai's plan is for God's people to defend themselves and affect the destruction of anyone who would care to act on Haman's plan. The previous plan placed the Jews in the crosshairs of deadly force. The new plan places them in a position of empowerment and freedom to live. The new edict turns the Jews from objects of Haman's wrath to objects of Mordecai's mercy. Now, this deal with the two edicts, this was another thing that we it seems convoluted, right? It's, it's an interesting little kind of political conundrum. It's a weird detail. It has, first of all, all the hallmarks of being historically true. But it'd be a weird thing to make up if you're just trying to tell some you know, straightforward, you know, story about a a brave queen or something like that. Basically, the king cannot rescind his previous edict. He can't just say about Haman's plan, which he had authorized, never mind. You can't do that. An order once issued can't be revoked. So instead, he approves a new order granting a mitigation to the previous order. Does it sound like, like the government, right, you know? We'll fix the old laws with new laws. That's what we'll do. The original judgment cannot be revoked, but its impact can be reversed. And so it's kind of complex, but this is also a sweet foreshadowing of the redemptive reversal of the cross for sinners like us. Let me see if I can explain. This is what I mean. You and I are sinners beholden to the holy God that we have rebelled against. He owes us nothing. He owes us nothing but wrath, actually. And he has issued an edict as well. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.22. According to the law, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This is the edict from a holy God, and it cannot be rescinded. For God to rescind this law would be to compromise his own holiness, to forfeit his own justice, So what does he do? A sacrifice must be made. Blood must be shed. Sin must be punished. And so he issues a new edict. He sends his son Christ Jesus to become our substitute. To put himself in the place of condemnation and receive on the cross the wrath of God that we deserve. And in doing so, he maintains his justice while at the same time justifying sinners before him. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 verse 26. God presented Christ to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. God cannot circumvent his own laws, but he can issue a new one. Jesus Christ absorbs the punishment that we are owed. So there's two choices before us. Do we want to take the punishment Or do we want Christ to take it for us? At the cross, Christ takes our place as the object of wrath so that you can take the place of redemption as an object of mercy. This weird legal wrangling in Esther is an illustration of that. Redemption turns objects of wrath into objects of mercy of mercy. We're helpless in our own power. We are vulnerable as guilty sinners before a holy God. But the redemptive work of Christ intervenes in our lives. It doesn't reverse the condemnation owed to sinners, but it reverses the course of sinners away from condemnation. So if you want to embrace this redemptive reversal, reverse your course. Repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus. And if you will, you'll receive his abundant mercy. He gives it to us freely. You can become one of God's people by identifying with Christ, embracing him as Lord and Savior. You see those who are on the opposite side, they're trying to avoid the the death that could come to them by identifying with God's people. Many people declared themselves, hey, we're Jews too. Perhaps some were authentic. Perhaps some are just trying to hide. But even that is a picture of how we escape the condemnation that is owed to sin. We hide ourselves in Christ. We identify with him. And he will be our refuge. You can become one of God's people by identifying with Jesus, embracing him as Lord and Savior, surrendering to the edict of grace. And if you do, you will go from awaiting condemnation as an object of wrath to living forever free as an object of mercy. As 1 Peter 2.10 declares, Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Redemption turns objects of wrath into objects of mercy. Thirdly and finally, redemption turns victims into victors. Redemption turns victims into victors. In Christ, there is no condemnation. We do not have to fear the punishment for sin. Because God has placed that on Christ. And yet we still deal with the internal war against the flesh. We still deal with the persecution and oppression of the enemies of God. We still deal with satanic accusation. We still deal with satanic temptation. We would be victimized. And yet because of Christ, we can claim victory. Mordecai begins in sackcloth and ashes. And he ends in a royal robe. He goes from devastation to exaltation, from being brought to the lowest of lows to being exalted on high. Chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, all of his powerful and magnificent accomplishments and the detailed account of Mordecai's great rank with which the king had honored him, have they not been written in the book of the historical events of the kings of Medea and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second only to the king. He was famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. He continued to pursue prosperity for his people and to speak for the well-being of all his descendants. Just as the people he and Esther have interceded for have enjoyed a reversal of fortunes, so does Mordecai. The Jews go from fearing for their lives to threatening those who would dare to threaten them. Their status has changed from victims to victors, and so has Mordecai's. Once he was crying and weeping outside the king's gates, now he's moved on up to the east side. Any Xers in here? Get that? I told my wife there was a Jefferson's reference in the sermon this morning. She said, no one's going to get that. (laughs) He's got a deluxe apartment in the sky. He's traded his sackcloth for royalty, the second in command. He sees that his people are no longer hiding, but now walking in prosperity. All along, God is orchestrating events toward the good of his people. Believe this. It may be imperceptible at times, but we can trust that he is working all things, all things, the Bible tells us, to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. They go from afflicted to waging conquest, which is exactly what Christ does in his affliction. And because he has accomplished this, we can walk in victory, even in a world that would often want to victimize us. We can walk in victory, even against a spiritual enemy who comes against us. Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. And at the cross, And out of the tomb, Jesus has bound the strong man. And while the Jews here withhold plundering from their enemies, which is keeping with the law of God, we can plunder our enemy's house. We can rescue the perishing. We can care for the dying. Because Jesus has conquered the power of sin and death. He has defeated the satanic enemy and purchased victory over the world and the powers of worldliness. What is left for those who have died with Christ and been raised with Christ is not a wallowing in self-pity or a cowering in defeat, but a rising up to live as sanctified soldiers in the war against the flesh and the war against the powers and principalities of the world. We may be afflicted in this life. We suffer from oppression from the devil, from his accusations, his persecutions, but Christ's redemption of us, brothers and sisters, takes us from a status of victimhood to a perennial place of victory. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him give us all things? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died for us even more. He has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of God? Can affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? I mean, it's, it's written because of you we're being put to death all day long. We're like sheep being led to the slaughter. No. Even in these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What a forecast Esther is for any believer who's ever found himself at the bottom of the barrel. Don't give up hope. You are destined for glory. It may feel sometimes like the Lord has forgotten you, but just the opposite happened. He cared for you so much, he took your name with him to the cross. And he carried you with him out of that tomb. Never forget, no matter what is happening in our eyesights, Christ is king. He is risen, and he reigns forever. The end, fade to black. Wrong. (laughs) There's one more ending. You're like, I thought this was the end. There's one more ending to attend to. Another one of those weird little details that leaves more to sort out. Through all the redemptive reversals in this book, there's still one major character, the most frustrating character, who remains totally unchanged. Ahasuerus. No change of heart that we can discern. No real character development. He starts out a dirtbag, he finishes a dirtbag. How do we know this? Chapter 10 verse 1. He imposes a tax. There's a big jerk move. There's a like we don't have anything else going on, king. King Ahasuerus imposes a tax throughout the land even to the farthest shores. What in the world? Does he not have enough money? One of the commentators points out let him melt down one of those golden couches, (laughs) right? Good grief. He seems unmoved by everything taking place around him. He hasn't really softened a little bit. All we see is that he's willing to be swayed, He, he can be manipulated. He just responds to his appetites, to the latest stimuli. It just so happens that God's people get the upper hand in the swaying at this point. And in this last little conclusion, it's a tiny reminder that oppression will persist this side of heaven. But praise God, we still have the power to live as victors in a world of victimization. Mordecai can be an example of this, actually. He's an example of one who seeks the good of people in the midst of a system that is corrupted by self-interest and injustice. We're still dealing with that today, and we still need Mordecai's in the political realms of our earthly kingdoms, sent out to advocate for the common good, for the liberties of all people, and in our day and place, the liberty of God's people to exercise our faith without fear of persecution and coercion. We need Christians serving as salt and light in all corners of our culture, political or otherwise. But the larger point is that we have never been reliant on a king except for one the truer and better king, the only king, King Jesus. And the ultimate reversal is yet to come. We trust in it because of his cross and resurrection. We hope in it because he has promised his return will reverse not just our circumstances of brokenness and hardship, but the cosmic curse of sin itself. The kingdom of Ahasuerus is passing away. The kingdoms of all the Ahasueruses are passing away. The kingdom of Biden is passing away. The kingdom of Trump is passing away. The kingdom of Putin is passing away. The kingdom of Kim Jong-un is passing away. The kingdom of the flesh, of worldliness, of self-exaltation, of self-indulgence is passing away. All kingdoms of the earth have an expiration date. But the kingdom of Christ is forever. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The book of Revelation tells us every crowned person will throw their crowns at his feet. For he is the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. And his kingdom is at hand. It is here among us. You can declare yourself a part of it now if you'll repent of your sin and place your trust in Jesus. You can see your course toward condemnation reversed this very morning by seeking refuge in him. The end. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the gospel. Help us to remember we are people of the good news, not to trade it in for bad news, not to trade it in for lesser, kind of nice news, positive news, but the good news of what your son has done. We thank you for his cross. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you that he has ascended to your right hand and is interceding for us even now. We pray that you would bless the words that your Holy Spirit has breathed out, that you would help us to, through them, treasure your Son more clearly. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.